Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? When Miss Chelsea was singing um, the lyrics, so take my lamp, set it on a hill, set it on a lampstand, I won't be hidden. It felt like we um, need to like show our faith um, in Yeshua like, and have it shine and not hide what we believe in. Amen. Amen. To make it known. Amen. Anyone else? When we were singing, um, there is no one like you. Uh, before we sang that, I always thought it would, there was no one more powerful than him. But there is all, no one loves you more than him. Amen. Amen. Yeah, no one can compare with him in any dimension. Praise God. Anyone else? Last week, we left off with Moses having gone to Pharaoh and asking him to let the children of Israel go for three days into the wilderness to make offerings unto the Lord. And he denied it and increased the labors of the children of Israel such that the people were beat down and the, the hope that they had had was now quenched because Moses had, had come, Moses and Aaron had come to the elders and shown them the signs that God had given them, and they believed. But now they had only seen trouble come from it, and Moses was let, left disheartened as well. And what we read at the end of Exodus 5, starting in verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Okay, so, so that's where we, we, we end last week on Moses' first coming, as it were, to Pharaoh and to the people to be a deliverer, and it did not end as they expected. But God says that he's going to move and he is going to cause Pharaoh to send them out. So this week, when we, so we ended last time with Exodus 6, verse 1. Of course, this week we pick up with Exodus 6, 2, because that's the next number in progression. And you would think that it's a continuation, like where there's not any kind of a, a pause in time. But the, the Hebrew text indicates that there was a pause between God's statement in Exodus 6, 1 and what he says in 6, 2. Because rather than just continuing God speaking, it, the scripture says, and God spoke to Moses and said to him. 
Okay, so again, this is not needed that and God spoke would be there if it was one continuous passage. And according to tradition, there's some disagreement on how long this time span was, but it ranges from three months, six months, even all the way up to two years. But I think the general consensus falls somewhere within the one-year range. Where Moses had gone, Pharaoh had hardened the work, increased the labor, and then we pick up in Exodus 6-2, and God is sending Moses back to complete the work. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did, which, okay, so, but by my name, Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Hashem, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Hashem, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Hashem. Okay, so something that stands out here, we're going to spend a bit of time on this passage of Scripture. One thing that stands out is he says, I did not make myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Hashem. He says, I made myself known to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Okay, it can also be translated the all-sufficient one. But he says, but by my name Hashem, I did not make myself known to them. Now, for careful readers of the Bible, when you read that, you'd say, wait a second. Is God saying that prior to this point, the name Hashem was not known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If you go back and read, and you read in Genesis 15, you read in Genesis... Uh, well, in, in multiple places, actually, I can't remember all the places now. I think 27, 28. There's multiple places where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all know the name Hashem. And they say it, or he says it to them. Even Abimelech, king of Gerar, says the name of Hashem. Okay, and all this precedes Moses. So it should raise a question in our mind of, what is God saying when he says, I, reveal, I made myself known as El Shaddai, but not by Hashem? Okay, so it's not about did they know what his name was. It was did they know him by his character, his nature, that is represented within the name. Last week we talked a little bit about the name and about how it's a statement of, of his existence right? That he was, he is, and he will be. That's all contained within his name. God has many, many names revealed in the scripture, and each one represents a different aspect of who he is. In the Talmud, in Shemot Rabbah, it says, and God said to Moses, okay, it says, and God said to Moses, God said to Moses, 
You wish to know my name. I am called according to my deeds. Sometimes I am called El Shaddai, Tzavaot, Elohim, Hashem. When I judge the creations, I am called Elohim. When I am waging war against the wicked, I am called Tzavaot, which is Lord of hosts. When I suspend punishment for a man's sins, I am called El Shaddai, Almighty God. When I am merciful towards my world, I am called Hashem. For Hashem only refers to the attribute of mercy, as it is said, Hashem, Hashem, God merciful and gracious. Hence, Eye Asher Eye, I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. He's saying, I am called according to my deeds. So tell them that I am who was, that I am now, and that I will be in the future. And within his name of mercy, there's an aspect of covenant faithfulness that is represented and demonstrated in his appearing. His great desire is to be known by his people. Not just that we could say, you know what, I've got a list and I've got El Shaddai, I've got Sava'ot, I've got Elohim, I've got all these lists. But what do these names mean? How do they represent the true God that has revealed himself to all creation and to you? And do you know him? Have you experienced him? Because that's what he's looking for. He's talking about an experience with him. You know, um, because the experience with him and the true knowledge of who he is is what brings transformation to our lives and then actually flows through us to bring transformation to the world. So when Yeshua was here, when, when we read in this week's portion in Luke 11, in this week's gospel portion, Luke 11, Yeshua is casting out demons by the power of the Spirit. And he says that the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom has come upon them because they have witnessed the finger of God demonstrating his power and authority over the rulers of this world. And Yeshua was operating from a place of knowing experientially who God is. And then it was through that relationship with the Father that the power of God was able to move through Yeshua to do this. But again, it was an intimate knowing, not just an intellectual knowing. We see another example in the scriptures where there were those who tried to approach the casting out of demons without an experiential knowledge of Yeshua and tried to do it just based on knowing his name, his name just as, as in that his name's Yeshua, not the power or authority or the character in which it contained. So if we were to look in Acts 19, verses 13 through 16, this is the, the prelude to this was speaking about the miracles being performed through Paul and through other apostles. And it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Okay, so the these are sons of a high priest who are coming, knowledgeable about who God is, understanding that there is a person named Jesus who, in his name, things are being done in great power, and so they say, well, we're going to go do that too. 
And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, is there power in the name of Yeshua? Absolutely. Is there authority in the name of Yeshua? Absolutely. The degree that we walk in that authority and that power is based on how much we have sought to know him experientially, not just to know of him, with our relationship with him, whereby we become a vessel of the presence, and then he moves through us in order to transform the world. Right, so God's great desire is that we know him and experience his salvation and then proclaim it to the world. Yeshua said, and I think it's John 17, 3, said, this is, this is everlasting life, that they would know you and the one whom you've sent, right? To know you, the one true God, to know you. Okay, so God knows, God's idea of knowing, again, is one that's experiential. He speaks back, you know, when he spoke with Moses at the burning bush, he said that he has heard their outcry of the children of Israel. He has seen their problems, their burdens, and he has known their sufferings. That He has known their sufferings. That's because he too experienced the suffering of the children of Israel. It wasn't something that he was just able to observe. He was in it with them, and he suffered as they suffered. Interestingly, you know, if we were to look in Isaiah 63, 9, Actually, let's start in 8. He said, Surely they are my people's sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior. And in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angels of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. God's a personal God. And his son was afflicted in all that the children of Israel were afflicted, and God knew the sufferings, and he came as one to make his name known so that his people could relate to, the, to him in a greater degree and that the whole world would know. Now, even that statement of you shall know, you shall experience who God is, is even contained in the passage that we read a moment ago. And... It's here in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. In this passage, there are four expressions of redemption that are declared. And these four expressions of redemption are tied to the four cups of wine that we have, or of the fruit of the vine that we have at Passover. And they are I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So these aspects of I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will know experientially that I am Hashem, your God who brought you out from under the burdens. 
I am the one who is merciful and compassionate and the one who upholds the covenant. It's beautiful and wondrous to think of his character and his nature. Now, as I began to read this week's portion and thinking on the title of it, right? The, titles, the title of this portion is Vaera. Vaera. And that means I appeared. Well, there was a portion just a few weeks ago called Vaera, which means he appeared. And I began to think, well, that's interesting. There's no other portion with a name that is tied that, that closely that I'm aware of. So I said, well, what, what happened in that portion? And you go back and you read the, right at the beginning of Genesis 18, and the scripture says, Hashem appeared to Abraham. And I was like, okay, so Hashem appeared to Abraham. In this portion it says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, and so do we have more connections between the two portions? And so as, as I looked at it, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the beginning of Vayera, and at that point, Abraham has just undergone circumcision, circumcision a couple days earlier, and God now says in the presence of Sarah that they will have a son. So the birth is announced to both Abraham and Sarah. Then comes the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Isaac is born, and we follow all the way through Isaac's life, all the way to the binding of Isaac, the one who stands as a type of the Redeemer who would come and offer himself up on our behalf to bring a great redemption. So looking at the parallels here, this week's portion we have God recalling the appearance to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then bringing judgments on Egypt for the purpose of bringing a great redemption. So I'm starting to think of more connections between the two. So as, and as I mentioned here, Genesis 18 was a continuation of what started a couple days before. Okay, because a couple of days before in Genesis 17, that's when God appeared to Abraham and gave him the covenant of circumcision. Let me look at that briefly here. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So he said, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he makes, he makes a covenant with Abraham. 
He makes promises about the land and about the people. And that's all tying back to what God is revealing to to Moses here as he's getting ready to send him back to bring judgment on the Egyptians and freedom to his people. He's saying, remember my faithfulness to uphold my word and go back and look at my appearing to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob and what took place at those times and what is taking place now. So with God appearing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so it's not common in Genesis and Exodus for the Scripture to say that God appeared. It happens a number of times. There's three times that it shows up with Abraham. There's twice that it shows up with Isaac, and again twice where it shows up with Jacob. Now, with Abraham, there's three, but this one in Genesis 18 is very much a continuation of Genesis 17. So, in some ways, there's two times with each one. And to Abraham, at the time that he appeared, he said, I'm El Shaddai. To Jacob, when he appeared, he said, I'm El Shaddai. To Isaac, he didn't say that specifically at that moment. But in these encounters with Abraham, he said, I'm El Shaddai and I'm changing your name. It's not Abram, it's Abraham. With Jacob, he said, I am, actually, he said, I'm Hashem to, to Jacob. But he says in another time, El Shaddai, and he says, I'm changing your name. Your name will be called Israel. But he didn't change Isaac's name. So I was like, well, that's interesting. What's going on here? Why is it that God changed Abram's name? He changed Jacob's name, but he didn't change Isaac's name. And then, I, then the thought came, it's like, because God named Isaac. When he announced the birth of Isaac in Genesis 17, he said, Sarah will have a son and you will call his name Isaac. He already had the name God had for him. And so let's take it even further, right? So when we look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who do we see as the greatest picture of Yeshua? We see, we see Isaac as the greatest picture of Yeshua through his offering himself up. And so too, even with him, the angel, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you will have a son, you will call his name Yeshua. It's pretty cool, right? Some, some parallels here that are going on between the patriarchs and what's taking place with the names and God revealing himself as El Shaddai. And in each time that God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in these times, he's speaking of covenant and he's speaking of offspring and he's speaking of the land. There was one time that he appeared to Isaac and did not mention the land, but it's a consistent theme of he appears and he restates who he is, what his covenant is, and his promises to keep with his people. He gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now at the time of the children of Israel's greatest despair, their greatest affliction, he comes and says to Moses, now I'm moving to bring salvation to my people. And you need to remember that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I repeated over and over again that I will do what I have said. And you will know me by my name that is mercy and compassion 
in this time. You have seen me act as El Shaddai, the one who shepherds, the one who leads from behind, the one who is acting within the natural order of this realm to bring about my purposes. But now you're going to see me move in a greater dimension of power when I reveal that I am superior over all the gods of this world for the very purpose of upholding my words and making my name known to you, my name's known to Egypt, and my name known to the entire world. And it's in that progression that it takes place. Because when he came to, when Moses came to the elders of the children of Israel, the signs given to him in last week's portion were for the leaders of the children of Israel so that they would believe that God had sent Moses. Those signs were not given to Pharaoh. Now, at this time, he's going back and God's saying, you're going to perform these signs and wonders so that Egypt will know. And then later on in this portion, he's going to say that he's doing these things so that the whole world will know. The revelation comes first to the people and then to the circle beyond the people and then unto the whole world. This is part of how the gospel spread too, right? You will preach in Judea and Samaria and all the world, right? The gospel goes forth and it radiates out because it moves through God's people who have known him by name. And it's God's desire to reveal himself such that we can turn from our error and our ways and begin to walk with him. But the choice lies with us of how are we going to respond when we hear his voice, what will we do? It's one thing to hear his voice or even to see his signs and wonders, but then what follows through as a result? What does our knowing create? Okay, so, so here Moses is getting ready to come back on his second journey of redemption for the children of Israel. And We started out seeing Moses at a place where he's discouraged. And God says, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal myself as Hashem. And Moses' response is not, all right, let's go do it. Instead, Moses is a little bit hesitant, just as he was on the first time. And in Exodus 6, I don't think I have it in here, Exodus 6, 12, Okay, in 10. Let's start in 10. No, okay. Sorry, guys. I'm going to just, I'm going to figure out where we're going. <laughs> All right, so God had made his promise about he's going to give the land as a heritage. And in Exodus 6 9, Moses spoke accordingly to the children of Israel. So he went and told them. He's like, All right, I'm coming back and I'm telling you. But they did not heed Moses because of shortness of breath and hard work. Right? Because of their affliction, they could not hear the words of hope. They couldn't believe in the words of promise. And the Lord said to Moses, Come, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he send the children of Israel from his land. Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not listened to me. So how will Pharaoh listen to me? And I have sealed lips. 
Okay, so here he is. He's going back. Going back to some of the previous objections that he had at the burning bush. Of saying, who am I? I'm not eloquent of speech. How can I go do this thing? I don't have the position. But God doesn't leave him there. He doesn't say, well, yeah. I guess you are kind of worn out. Go, go ahead and sit down. No, God strengthens him, right? Before he said, I'm the one who created your mouth. I'm the one who will place the words in your mouth. You can do it. Because that's what God was doing. He was encouraging Moses back at the burning bush. And even now he's encouraging Moses. He's strengthening Moses so that Moses can continue to go forward to do what Moses ultimately desires and to perform the will of God. Without God's strengthening him and encouraging him, he couldn't have done it because the weight was too heavy and the doubts were too large. But with God's help, he was able to go forward. And in Exodus 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you... Elohim over Pharaoh, right? I've made you a God over Pharaoh or a master over Pharaoh or one who is like a God, if you will. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your spokesman. You shall speak everything that I shall command you and Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh that he should send the children of Israel from his land. But I shall harden Pharaoh's heart and I shall multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not heed you and I shall put my hand upon Egypt and I shall take out my legions, my people, the children of Israel from the land of Egypt with great judgments. And Egypt shall know that I am Hashem when I stretch out my hand over Egypt and I shall take the children of Israel out from among them. All right, so here now we're moving into Egypt will know that I am Hashem when, I, when they see my great powers and works over their land. Okay, so, so Moses has now been strengthened and encouraged, and from that he's able to go forward and to do God's will. Now in this passage, what we just read is, I shall harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land, and he will not heed you. Oh, that's interesting, right? I know we've, we've talked about this in years past. I feel like it's always worth going back over the questioning of what does this mean about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and what is the situation? Because there's a lot of discussion within the body about um, how much free will do we have? Where does predestination stand? Did Pharaoh have a choice or did God force him to hold the children of Israel captive so that God could go about and do all of these great wonders. Now, it's a fundamental thought in Jewish theology that God does not cause one to sin. He does not, and, and that he gives man free will. So, what we have to look at in this week's portion, when we, when we look through, and even in next week's portion, is to say, how do we understand what the Scripture is saying when it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? And what we're going to find is that in the Hebrew, it doesn't always say God made his heart hard, even though in most English translations, it always says hardened. 
There's a distinction in the words used at each step, at each time this word comes about. And each time it's revealing a different aspect of what's taking place. All right, so in this verse that we just read in Exodus 7, 3, when he says, I shall harden Pharaoh's heart, it's a unique word that's not used anywhere else in the context of the hardening of the heart. It's, he says that he will make it severe, ekshe. And it's that root, the root of that word is tied to what Pharaoh did to the children of Israel when he multiplied their work for them. When he said that he wasn't going to give them straw. And so embedded within the statement here of God making Pharaoh's heart difficult, he's connecting it to the difficulty that Pharaoh placed on the children of Israel and the affliction that was brought on them. And just a side note too, um, you know when I mentioned the, the fundamental thought that God does not force an action, that he allows free will and that he does not cause one to sin, that's what the scripture says in James 1. That God does not, there is no sin in God and he does not tempt anyone to sin. If he does not tempt anyone to sin, he does not force anyone to sin. Okay, so let's start with that fundamental principle of God will not tempt to sin, he will not force to sin. So if hardening the heart means that he caused Pharaoh to sin, then we're misunderstanding hardening of the heart first and foremost. So let that be kind of a little groundwork for us as we go through this. But there's, there's two words that are primarily used to describe, the, to describe what is happening with Pharaoh's heart throughout the ten plagues. One is kavod, the other is chazak. Okay, kavod is to make heavy, or it, like it can be great. Kavod can actually uh, speak of greatness. It can speak of uh, heaviness. And so in many ways it can be thought of as stubbornness in this context. Okay, so if, if his heart is kavod, then he's being stubborn. Now chazak means strong. So if his heart is strong, then we can think of it as being he's bold or that he has courage. So there's times when Pharaoh's heart is kavod, and there's sometimes that it is chazak. There are times that Pharaoh makes his heart kavod, stubborn. There's times that Pharaoh makes his heart chazak, strong. But within all the plagues, the scripture only says that God made Pharaoh's heart Chazak, strong. So that's interesting, right? God strengthened Moses to go and do what Moses desired when he didn't have the ability to do it on his own because he was weak, he was discouraged. But his desire was to see the children of Israel freed, to see their burdens taken off them. So God strengthened Moses so that Moses could go and do his will, both Moses' will and the will of God. So when he strengthens Pharaoh's heart, he's strengthening Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can move forward to do Pharaoh's desire rather than just capitulating and being, I am worn out and I can't go on anymore, even though I really want to see the destruction of the children of Israel. Right? So God strengthens Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can pursue his desires. 
It is Pharaoh who makes himself stubborn and refusing to heed what he sees and what he hears and to respond in repentance to God and to let the children of Israel go. Now, when we look at this, this whole deliverance that God is bringing, we can wonder if God is all-powerful and God can do anything that He wants, why does He need ten plagues to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Why does He need Pharaoh's heart to be hard? Or, you know, why does He need Pharaoh to be stubborn? Why does he need any of this if he could simply just bring the children of Israel out, just open up the gates, split the sea, let them just walk right on out, stop the army right here, let's go, and take them to the land. But he's doing this from the aspect of revealing himself, revealing himself as powerful over all things, so that... Pharaoh would recognize, Pharaoh would repent and turn from his ways, and in doing that, would proclaim God to be the one true God over all the earth. And from there, the nations would see it and know. Right? And I I don't really make that up either, right? That's in Exodus 9. In Exodus 9, 13... um, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? So he is raised, so he has raised him up so that God's power would be known in all the earth. And now this is after the sixth plague that this statement is made, and God is getting ready to bring seven, number seven, which is the hail and the fire. And, and here when he says that I've raised you up, it's, it's not the aspect of creation. It's the aspect, within the Hebrew, there's a, a connotation with it being, I have resuscitated you. I have renewed you. I've lifted you up out of utter destruction and death, which is where you would be had I not sustained you for the purpose of making God's name known to all the earth. Okay, so speaking of speaking of these times that God is revealing himself and what's happening in each of the plagues. God's showing his mastery over all things. Um, And throughout the course of it, there's different things happening in Pharaoh's heart. And so we have a chart here that would, and I can always share this out later, but it goes through the ten plagues and gives in short summary 
what's taking place in Pharaoh's heart. In the, in the first plague, Pharaoh's heart was strong when the, blood, when the water turned to blood. For one reason that his heart was strong is that his own magicians were able to repeat this miracle. And then the frogs came up in number two, and his magicians were able to replicate the frogs. And the scripture says that Pharaoh's heart was stubborn, right? So first he was strong, he was confident, and now he's stubborn with the frogs. The third plague was lice, and Pharaoh's magicians could not replicate it. But yet Pharaoh was still confident. He was strong. And wild beasts came upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt, but they did not come into Goshen. And Pharaoh was stubborn. The livestock died in the land of Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh remained stubborn. And then boils came upon all the people of Egypt, but not on the children of Israel. And the boils were so severe that his magicians couldn't even come before him. This is the part where God is saying, I have resuscitated you. I'm allowing you to continue on. I'm strengthening you so that you can continue on, giving you opportunity to repent and to change. Because for God, it's not enough to force someone into submission, but to bring them to a point where they actually have a transformation from the heart. Okay, because he can force us into submission. I mean, he's strong to do that, right? But his desire is that our heart would change. And, get, and seeing someone just give in out of the frailty of their own body or of their own mind, he's like, no, come to me. Experience the restoration that I have. So he says, I've resuscitated you. I've strengthened you here in plague six. And then the hail and the fire come here at the end of this portion. And Pharaoh's heart, even though he sees fire and ice together, which is a representation that two gods who are opposed to one another are somehow coming together, which indicates that, that Hashem is over all, master over all, and the other gods of this world are nothing, yet Pharaoh strengthens his heart and makes his heart stubborn. So then God strengthens him through plague eight and nine, and ultimately, Pharaoh relents and sends the children of Israel out in plague 10. At no time did God take away Pharaoh's free will. He just gave Pharaoh the ability to walk in Pharaoh's will. Now, along with that, I just want to offer a couple of verses before we, before we wrap up. Um, in tying in with this concept, sometimes from the reading of Romans, there's a thought that God created Pharaoh for the purpose of making him an instrument of judgment. Right? Um, in the scriptures in Romans say that God created some vessels for honor, some for wrath. And that's often used to say, well, yeah, some are, are uh, predestined to salvation, others are not. Okay, but that's not what that passage means. Because 
Okay. God created man in his image. God placed his image in man. God does not destroy his image. Okay, first and foremost. So he does not create any man for the purpose of destruction. That man ends up in destruction is a result of man not responding to God's revelation of himself. And in Ezekiel 18, I'm just going to read some of these quickly because I know we're running short on time. Ezekiel 18, he says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Right? So God's desire is to see the transformation, not see the destruction. He said, and he says in verse 32 of Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. Okay, these are just a couple of examples. God's desire is for life, for all that he has created. And he wants to see the transformation, both for the individual's salvation, that he can have that relationship with them, but also, too, so that it will make his name great in the earth, that it will sanctify his name. And so God's looking for that to take place. When we speak of... When we speak of God creating vessels, creating people for the purpose of destruction or for wrath, we don't represent his character and nature as one who is merciful and gracious. And God, in his mercy, desires even the most wicked to repent and come to know, come to know him. Now, Predestination is a thing, a real thing in the Bible, right? So if predestination does not have to do with who is chosen to have eternal life or not have eternal life, then what is predestination really all about? And, and we find it in the, in, the, in the New Testament scriptures. Romans 8.29 says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brethren. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. That hidden wisdom that was predestined, right, was God being manifest in Yeshua. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, in Messiah, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Yeshua Messiah to himself. Okay, so the predestination that is spoken of, spoken of here is God's hidden mystery from the beginning, that he would be revealed in his son and that his son would be the salvation of all who would call on the name of the Lord. And that this predestination was for God's people, for the people he has created, to become conformed to the image of his son and adopted into the kingdom of heaven. That's what predestination is about. There is salvation contained in that, but that is not the focus. The focus is God's intent for us to become like him, to know him, to experience him, to have his name placed upon us. 
to become like Yeshua and that we would become witnesses in all the earth for him. So within this week's within this week's message of God saying, I'm making myself known as Hashem, the one who has compassion and mercy. He's the one saying, I am sending forth my messenger to go and bring forth salvation to my people and redemption to my people. Now come and know me experientially, not just the words that I say, but know that I am known by my words. I'm known by my deeds. So when God's speaking to us, when he's guiding us, when he's giving us these truths in the scripture, he's calling out and saying, come closer. Draw near. Know me by all my names. And see the transformation that I work in you, bringing you salvation in every dimension of your life. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you'd like to share? God opens the terms of relationship. Sorry. With supernatural salvation. Salvation from the flood for the Noahide covenant. Miraculous birth against the end of a bloodline with the Abrahamic covenant. Ten plagues in the Passover lamb saved Israel from slavery and genocide for the purpose of Sinai covenant. There's a resurrection of the anointed one with wonders from the Spirit of God to save the world from slavery to sin and death. After the beginning of covenant, the miracles still exist, but they are not the highlight. The master teaches us that a wicked generation seeks a sign because it comes from an entitled attitude. Once the covenant is made, we have a responsibility to meet God in every mundane part of life because our life is mundane. It is not supernatural. God will still meet us supernaturally, but we must see him in the mundane. There are some who perform miracles, cast out demons, and prophesy. Yet he turns them away as workers of Torahlessness, Matthew 7. In a similar statement, he summarizes Torah with taking care of the poor, the sick, the unfortunate, and the victims of injustice, Matthew 26. The will of God is not so difficult as miracles, of which we have little control. The will of God is simple. It is taking care of the one that's hurting more than you are. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Richard. Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your truth and your kindness. We thank you for the revelation of who you are. Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see. Give us understanding of who you are and draw us ever closer to you, Lord, that your will may be perfected in us, that the person of Yeshua would be represented in us, by our words, by our actions. And Lord, that people would see and know that you are the one true God as we give glory to your name. We thank you and we bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.